Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey, everybody. I want to announce a couple of things here at the start. So first off, I just want to say thank you for your patience with me as I navigated a very full summer. I'm happy to say that I'm back on track with a regular episode recording schedule, and we've got a bunch of good stuff coming up. Many of you have been inquiring about the year-long course that I teach, The Mythic Body, and this course for 2022-23 is full. But I definitely want to make sure that people who resonate with the podcast and are really wanting to deepen their mythic study have opportunities to do so. So I'm going to be launching a series of short courses in the winter-spring. These are like five-week courses, not year-long courses. And these are opportunities to do short-term dives into some of the subjects that we explore on the podcast. So I'll be announcing more about these short form courses and their content shortly, but I just wanted to put on the radar that there will be some short form courses coming up with some really special guests participating also. So if you're interested in being on the mailing list for these short form courses and for next year's Mythic Body course, send an email to themythicbody at gmail.com. That's themythicbody at gmail.com and we'll make sure you get all the info. And with these short form courses, priority will be given to our podcast patrons and patrons will get a pretty significant discount on these courses as well. So if you've been appreciating the work and you've been wanting to deepen your mythic study, one really simple way to do that is to become a patron of the podcast, and you can do so at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. And you'll immediately get access to a twice monthly study group in which we explore the mythic topics that I explore on the podcast. And you'll also get discounts on course offerings and a variety of other benefits. And patronage starts for as little as $6 a month. So it works out to be a pretty good deal. So that's patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. And you can see the different patronage options there. Patronage is also a really good way simply to show your support for the work. I put a lot of time and energy into this podcast. I don't know really of many other podcasts that incorporate music production and music recording and sound studio work and narrative storytelling in exactly the same way. And I'm doing it because that's what I love to do. And it's also fairly time intensive. And patronage really helps support the artistic vision of the podcast. It helps me pay musicians because I really believe in paying people that contribute. It helps me pay for studio time. It helps me pay for research. And it really makes it possible for me to do this full time and to release episodes that are of the depth and quality that I think the listeners of the podcast have come to expect. So again, if you love the podcast, please help support and you'll be able to join for study groups and you'll get a lot of other benefits as well. Patreon.com slash The Emerald Podcast. And now on with our episode. So 
Last time in the death episode, I said something towards the end about embodiment, which of course is a very commonly used and possibly overused word these days, right? And what I said was this, current embodiment discourse puts a lot of emphasis on being in the body here and now, feeling into the gut, rooting, anchoring. And this is an important part of what embodiment means. But embodiment also means expanding the boundaries of what the body is. For at death, we ourselves will be involuntarily expanded. We will suddenly be the river and the late summer wheat field and the distant sky of stars. It sounds beautiful, but also terrifying. Will the vastness terrify us? Maybe not if we've practiced an embodied vastness. Have we practiced being torn apart in preparation for the great tearing apart? Have we practiced shedding in preparation for the great shedding? Have we practiced dissolving in preparation for the great dissolving? Have we practiced crumbling? Have we practiced bowing? How often do we practice bowing? Not Instagram bowing, bowing when no one else is around. At death, we bow alone. Have we practiced this? It's good practice because before the vastness of time, before the wheel of life and death, we all will bow one way or another. Embodied cultures, from the Kalahari to Siberia, regularly practice leaving the limited body and flying into the great body. Embodiment is also this, leaving what we call the body. Can we hold this? That embodiment also means being torn apart and flying away? To fly is to also be embodied. True embodiment also recognizes the death body, the corpse of Osiris, the place where our body is infinite, the place where our body is ancestry and light and time, the place where spirit flies. In our quest for embodiment, let us also not forget how to fly. So I want to unpack this a little more to explore what we really mean when we talk about embodiment from a mythic perspective, a ritual perspective, a communal perspective, a cosmic perspective. Because embodiment, which is a difficult word to actually define, has come to carry with it a certain set of assumptions and meanings. And there's a narrative that's increasingly common about embodiment. And that narrative is important and necessary and often beautiful. But then, as with all narratives, it can become narrow and numbly repeated to the point that it is leached of meaning. Embodiment discourse, too, can become abstracted and lose its very body. So it's worth tearing the body of embodiment discourse open a bit and going deeper, cracking open its bones, pouring out its slippery marrow to find the body that lives at the heart of it once again. For what does embodiment mean? Within this world of bodies, within bodies, within bodies, within the great body of time and space, what is it to be embodied? Let's start with this. What we call embodiment discourse, the current emphasis on the word embodiment, is a reaction to a deep modern wound. This is a good foundational place to start, right? Embodiment discourse arises out of the modern West's fraught history with bodies. The longing for embodiment comes from our longing to reclaim something, our longing to be reunited with the breathing earth beneath our feet, perhaps, our longing to feel part of something again. 
something that we were ancestrally more deeply connected to, a living earth, a living ecology, a living sacredness, in contrast to a sacredness that for so long has only been thought of as distant and far away, that has been seen as divorced from bodies entirely. You know the story, right? Detached from direct interaction with land, large-scale societies and their emerging religious traditions shunned the body, the material world, in favor of a spiritual essence that was thought to be beyond material. Attention turned from animate forces of wood and brook and glade to detached sky gods. The real juice, we were told, wasn't here, it was up there somewhere, far, far away. And so this body, and the body of the world, was to be transcended, to be left behind, to be risen above. Modernity reinforced this growing rift even further. The rational mind was greater than the body. The body was only acceptable insofar as it served a higher rational purpose. As society became more mechanistic, bodies began to be viewed as machines. Vilification of the body discussed with the body. The view of the body as something to be controlled and manipulated, even to be held down, as Francis Bacon, the founder of the modern scientific method, once said, and forced into submission leads to a range of societal and environmental ills. It leads directly to the mess we're in. It provides philosophical justification for the destruction of the planet. It reinforces seeing those cultures who actually retain embodied connection to ecology as less than, as primitive, and therefore justifies the enslavement of certain bodies and the subjugation of other bodies. For if bodies are only fit to be mechanistic servants of a higher reason, and the highly irrational goal of that supposed reason is dominance and control and accumulation of materialistic wealth, then a body is only as good as long as it produces, as it births, as it either controls or serves, as it acts as a cog in a great soulless wheel of consumption. How the body of this world has been fractured, how it has been shunned, how it has been quantified and boxed in and measured and dissected and vivisected. How its minerals have been pulled out of its very bones. How the marrow of what it is to be a being in a body has been sucked dry. How it has been accessorized and technologized. How the voices of the subterranean spaces have been silenced. How it has been robbed of vital breath. How it has been bound in constrictive clothing, numbed with painkillers, deadened in isolation from the breathing forest. How it has been shamed, exploited, treated like a mass monocrop driven into a relentless cycle of gnawing agitation. What have we done to the body? What have we done to the body? So embodiment discourse arises as a pendulum swing reaction to the Western scientifo-Christian industrialized vision of bodies. If there is sacredness to be found in this world, embodied discourse might say, it is to be found right here. In the intricate web of ecological relationships of which this body is inextricably a part. Embodiment discourse arises in tandem with the environmental movement and also with modern therapeutic psychology and modern bodywork and encourages an emphasis on reclaiming a relationship with the body. Being in the body, as we hear over and over again, right? Being in the body. 
reconnecting the body to the natural cycles that govern it, feeling into the processes of the body, feeling the body as part of a great network of life, of breath, of being. It arises in reaction to spiritual traditions that, in their emphasis on transcendence, repeat over and over again, sometimes literally repeating over and over again, I am not the body. Embodiment discourse encourages, perhaps, a return to, I am, in fact, this body, a body within a great living body of the world. From David Abram, quote, To acknowledge that I am this body is not to reduce the mystery of yearnings and fluid thoughts to a set of mechanisms. It is not to lock up awareness within the density of a closed and bounded object, for the boundaries of a living body are open and indeterminate, more like membranes than barriers. They define a surface of metamorphosis and exchange. The breathing, sensing body draws its sustenance and its very substance from the soils, plants, and elements that surround it, continually contributes itself in turn to the air, to the composting earth, to the nourishment of insects and oak trees and squirrels, ceaselessly spreading out of itself as well as breathing the world into itself, so that it is very difficult to discern at any moment precisely where this living body begins and where it ends. Considered phenomenologically, that is, as we actually experience and live it, the body is a creative, shape-shifting entity. Ultimately, to acknowledge the life of the body and to affirm our solidarity with this physical form is to acknowledge our existence as one of the Earth's animals and so to remember and rejuvenate the organic basis of our thoughts and intelligence. And this is a beautiful and necessary vision embodiment as connection to the body of a living world. But of course, now embodiment has become one of those words. It's said so much, it kind of loses its sap, you know what I mean? And while it's spoken a lot, it's rarely unpacked. Like, what does being embodied actually mean? What does it really look like? Do we pause when we say the word embodiment to feel into what we're actually saying? And of course, we don't have to go around defining everything. Our sense of embodiment could be up to each one of us to feel into what it means for us on this particular day, beneath this particular moon, in this particular forest, with this particular breath. But sometimes if you don't take some time to look deeper into words that have been opened up to the great forces of culture, then these cultural forces are free to act upon those words. And what that means is something like embodiment discourse can be imperceptibly and slowly influenced by the culture at large, by modern consumerism, and then can even end up reinforcing the modern fractures it's trying to address, and in the process can become quite distanced from how bodies have been traditionally seen and felt and experienced. So some people these days talk of embodiment as pretty much synonymous with wellness. Embodiment equals, what, sitting in the sauna just being in your body. There's this kind of idealized sense that if people were simply more in their bodies, then everything would be fine. I'm in my body. In my body. Yep, I'm in my body. What am I doing here? I don't know, but I'm in my body. Inevitably, embodiment discourse also gets interwoven with modern psychology. And so people talk of embodiment in psychological terms, and the embodiment process becomes therapeutic, meaning that embodiment is all about the individual body processing its stuff. 
embodiment becomes linked with personal emotional work. And within that, what is embodiment exactly? Showing up for your feelings, processing trauma, transforming it maybe, simply being with it. Then there's embodiment as kind of an eco-philosophy, a set of somatic ecological ideals. Many people have now adopted the language of embodiment. Many write missives about the mind-body split. Many post all the right memes about mycorrhizal fungi and melting into the larger ecology. But how does that philosophy live in bodies? So these are three examples of how embodiment is treated now. And in these three examples, wellness embodiment, therapeutic embodiment, and philosophical embodiment, we see the holy trinity of Western cultural forces on full display. For embodiment discourse can easily become commercialized, as in the case of wellness embodiment, psychologized, as in the case of therapeutic embodiment, and abstracted, as in the case of philosophical embodiment, just as we do with everything else. So let's see today if we can help return embodiment discourse to its living body, perhaps. Return it to the soil, return it to the root, return it to its feathers and quills, its woven tissues, return it also to the sky above, return it to the great cloud bodies of vapor, return it to the sun and moon, return it to the stars, return it to space, return it to ether the connective tissue of the great body universe itself. For what is it to be embodied? Is it a self-care thing? Is it a sense of deep presence? Is it a commitment to therapeutic renovation? Is it a sense of just showing up? Modern embodiment discourse often tends to regard indigenous or traditional cultures as more embodied. What do we mean by that? Posturally? Postural studies have been done on hunter-gatherers and shown that their spinal alignment is far more efficient than in industrial bodies. They tend to walk with greater ease, move with greater efficiency. But embodiment is more than this, right? What? A state of presence, a sense of interconnection? Does all that come from just, as we often say these days, being in the body? Again, what does that mean? Are there any indigenous cultures at all, any traditions, that speak about just being in their bodies the way that we do? If we're going to hold indigenous cultures up as an example of embodiment, it's important to open the discussion up to the full range of how bodies are treated and how bodies express in these traditions, how bodies are seen in relation to the body of ecology and community and cosmos, and what the human embodied experience actually is. For example, there are many cultures that we would probably consider to be fairly embodied, that regularly practice dissociative trance. Dissociative trance, deep trance marked by shaking, convulsing, and a direct experience of dislocating from the body, floating above it, seeing the world from above. There are dozens upon dozens of indigenous traditions, traditions we, again, would tend to see as more embodied than our own, in which the core practice centers around trance, in which the stated goal is to leave the body. Their words, not mine leave the body. How does dissociative trance meet modern visions of therapeutic embodiment? Historically, dissociative trance has been viewed by psychologists and psychiatrists as a kind of pathology. And yet at the same time, anthropological studies have shown that dissociative trance plays a vital, healthy role in the communities that practice it. Such practices are central to how the culture gains insights, navigates communal challenges, experiences itself, renews its relationships within and without, 
West African Ifa trance practices, Afro-Brazilian trance practices, live right at the embodied heart of these cultures. So if the insights gained in what modern psychology calls dissociative trance help grow the body of a culture, then is it somehow disembodied to practice it? Or sometimes, perhaps, does a culture's overall embodiment depend on individual bodies being subjected to a process of journeying out, journeying beyond, a process of ritual intensity, of ritual breaking open that has very little to do with the psychological processes of the individual body and much more to do with the balance of the body of the greater ecosystem. For the bodily continuance of the community, some bodies must break open. Some must journey far, some must plumb the depths, some must soar into heights, some must even be sacrificed. Imagine that. Bodies in ritual go through agonizing repetition. Bodies are driven to the point of rupture. In myths, bodies do not exist in a kind of happily embodied stasis. You won't find spa wellness embodiment in the mythic journey. You won't find mythic protagonists simply being in their bodies. No, in the myths, bodies are ripped apart. Bodies shrink, bodies expand. Bodies are shed like skin. Bodies transmogrify, bodies are burnt to ash. Bodies are taken into union with natural forces with great intensity. This ritual embodiment, this mythic embodiment, is very different than wellness. It's very different than shadow work. It's very different than processing. It's very different than any individualistic vision of embodiment that the modern West could come up with. And historically, it's how bodies have actually navigated the great body of the community, the surrounding ecology, and the cosmos. At the core of this ritual mythic embodiment is the experience of ecstatic rapture. The rapturous state so central to many traditions, so vital a part of how cultures take insights and embody them into the culture's body, is often intense in its effects on individual bodies. The Sibylline oracles describe the trance of Apollo in which the rapturous force dramatically enters the body as a squeezing, a forcing, Oracles are left with permanent sensitivities. Sometimes they never recover. Traditional shamanic journeyers around the world subject the body to extreme psycho-spiritual forces, forces that over time bend the body. Embodiment isn't always pretty. If we're going to hold indigenous traditions as examples of embodiment, we're going to have to expand our definition of embodiment. For ritual embodiment includes deliberately induced pain, sometimes playing right at the edge of permanent physical transfiguration, playing sometimes right at the edge of death itself. Embodiment in traditional cultures may not ultimately be anything resembling what we would call therapeutic or concerned at all with individual psychological or physical wellness. The safety and preservation of individual bodies may not be the most important consideration in ritually driven cultures. In fact, the individual self in initiation is specifically meant to be taken to the brink and then ritually dismantled. Do you remember that great dismantling? Do you remember that day? Do you remember the story of the body that was torn apart? It is a story whispered from ear to ear across hundreds of thousands of years. Did you hear? the story of the body of this world and all the bodies in it. 
It is a story of being torn apart by great forces, again and again and again, the limbs of Osiris scattered across the world and reunited by his weeping bride again and again and again. Perhaps embodiment was that one day when you were torn apart, when you let those meticulously architected structures of holding on, those archways and edifices of the old, be torn wide open, and then grew a pair of wet new wings and soared towards the sky and dissolved into the sun and were burnt to cinders that went to adorn the great body of the world. Embodiment was the day that the you you knew as you crumbled and rotted into moss. Embodiment was the end of everything you knew, the great blasting open, the stripping of flesh from bone, the shedding of Inanna's seven royal ornaments, the ripping off of the lindworm's twelve layers of reptilian skin. Embodiment for you was to be demolished. For the jaguar who devoured you, it was simply breakfast. No, embodiment isn't always self-affirming. A body that never knows ritual struggle, never experiences some type of ritual dismantling, is not entering the fiery cauldron of transformation that is the essential nature of bodies. How can we be embodied if we expect anything other than for this body to burn, to melt, to blow away as ashes, to be reclaimed into a greater body, a great set of devouring jaws? Embodiment lives precisely in that struggle between the individual body and the greater body, in which one is both food and the eater of food. This precarious balance of individual body and great body is not comfortable. In order to form the great serpentine body of the community, each individual scale has to fit with the other despite their differing angles. And so a lot of embodiment practice is me repeatedly rubbing against that which challenges me to integrate my ideals in actual practice. Think embodiment and struggle are not connected? Try this on how do we actually embody all the teachings we've studied in the fiery cauldron of a community in which there are people whose viewpoints directly contradict our own? What comes through our bodies then? A lot of embodiment practice is, yeah, I've got lofty visions of community and social change, but do I do the dishes when it's my turn? Embodiment is friction. For embodiment in a universe whose body has space for all oppositional paradoxes is a great paradox. What do I mean? Here's a paradox. Sometimes to be embodied requires dismantling the body. Here's another. Sometimes to be embodied requires leaving the body. How could it be? Here's another. Being embodied does not require having a worldview or philosophy of embodiment. In fact, some of the most embodied people I've met have never said the word embodiment in their lives. It might be perfectly possible to be very much embodied and still see spirit and body as two separate things. In fact, it might even be possible to hold I am my body and I am not my body at once and find that embodiment is what lives in the charged space in between. We have to blow open our vision of embodiment to match the paradoxical grandeur of the great body, not just as a reaction to historical dualisms, 
For in doing that, we just end up reinforcing those same dualisms, but instead as an act of great remembering, absorbing, regrowing, flowering. For we find that embodiment is as vast as the body of the universe. Embodiment does not ask us to limit our visions of embodiment to rooting down. For is not the sky part of a great body? It does not ask us to limit our visions of embodiment to our body. On the great journey, embodiment is all this. Earth, ocean, space, sky, subject, object, life, death. All this, the great body. Embodiment means being torn apart and flying away. This time on the Emerald. very popular direction these days. There is much talk of rooting, much talk of soil, much talk of underworld journeys and relishing the dark and doing shadow work that involves going down into the deep spaces inside. And hey, I love a good underworld journey. And of course, it's a natural reaction, a pendulum swing from practices and philosophies and religious doctrines that for many years only focused on transcendence, on soaring into the sky on that which was bodiless and beyond. But now the pendulum in modern embodiment discourse has swung so far in the direction of the embodied ground that you could say we're forgetting that flying is important too. There's so much emphasis on downward depth and plumbing the shadows that it can feel kind of uncomfortable to even mention such things as sky mythologies or visions of a tiered cosmos or flight or light or spirit, or ether, or space. The want to fly, to soar into the cosmos, to dissolve into the light, can easily be seen as part of the problem, as bypassing, as always seeking beyond. The planet suffers because we're always looking up. I've done whole episodes on this. But check it out. There's nothing automatically better about down, either. Underworld work, shadow work, can just as easily lead to bypassing. Like, you know, eternally processing as a form of bypass. Ever seen that? Like, just cannot stop processing into the murk one more time. Or saying, I'm doing shadow work as a way of really saying, I want to wallow in the muck forever without any movement towards transformation. Wallowing in the underworld muck can be just as addictive and can take us out of the moment just as much as always looking up. So, yeah, let's not be directionalist, okay? Insights we gain from looking down and in are not inherently better than insights gained from soaring up and out. The current emphasis on descent is a reaction to a couple thousand years of cosmologies that put all their focus on ascent. But too much emphasis on the descent can also reinforce an unnecessary polarity between ascent and descent. By focusing on descent, we're still trapped in a dualism that has little to do with traditional visions of how body, sky, and earth actually interact. And this limits our experience of the vastness of the actual body of creation. The vastness. Because the sky has a body too. 
The sky has a body too. The sky is part of the great body and your body has the sky within it. In fact, your body is mostly sky. And sky is earth. Atmosphere is generated from the earth. Sky is earth and earth is sky. So rising and rooting don't need to be seen as two conflicting practices. The full picture of embodiment includes that which lives above and below. It includes the underworlds and upper worlds, the deep roots of the world tree, the high dome of sky and vault of stars. When Demeter searches for her lost daughter, Persephone, when she seeks to restore balance to the natural cycle, who does she visit? She goes deep into the underworld, down into the underworld to find Hecate, the dark crone. For Hecate, with her inner ear open to the workings of the lower realms, her ear that hears each trembling of the churning guts of the world, Hecate must have heard something. And she did hear something. She heard Persephone's screams. But she did not see what happened. So where does Demeter go to see? She goes up. Up, up into the sky. Up through the celestial layers to the very realm of Helios, the sun god. For what Hecate does not hear, Helios sees. Both are necessary. We must dig deep and we must fly. Ascend and descend, say the pyramid text. Descend with Nephthys, sink into darkness on the barge of night. Ascend and descend. Ascend with Isis, rise, rise with the barge of day. Rise, rise with the barge of day. Rise into the vastness. To practice flying into the upper world has historically been incredibly important for shamanic traditions upward journeying, spiritual flight. In fact, it is difficult to find a traditional culture for whom flying was not central to their embodied practice. The Inuit, the Carib, the Tapirape, the Buryat, the Tungus, the San, the Tupinamba, the Tibetans, the Mongolians, the people of the Indian subcontinent, all in their embodied practice also travel up. All over the world, shamans are credited with the power to fly, to cover vast distances in a twinkling, Mircea Eliade tells us. When the shaman enters an altered state of consciousness, James Pearson says, they are transformed, attaining the capacity for flight. In ecstatic trance, there is very often an upward movement. You felt it in altered states of consciousness. In studies of these states, David Lewis Williams writes, multiple subjects spoke of hovering, flying, Gazing across rows of houses or vast forests, suspended in midair viewing landscapes of mountains receding into the distance. The ubiquitous vision of the tiered cosmos, he surmises, is an outgrowth of somatic states. We experience in this body lower worlds, middle worlds, and upper worlds. The upper worlds of the trance space are vast. Vaster than we can imagine in our normal waking state. So embodied tantric traditions harness the consciousness up and out. San dancers in trance are drawn up by threads of light. I climbed the thread, Lewis Williams quotes one trance practitioner as exclaiming. It was the thread of the sky. Yes, my friend, now up there in the sky, the people up there, the spirits, the dead people up there, they sang for me and I danced. 
cosmic voyagers in trance, Michael Rappengluck tells us, ascend and descend the spheres of the world using, quote, branched trees, stepped mountains, ladders, rays of light to ride on, bird wings for flying through the air, fishtails and ships to move on the heavenly ocean, chariots driving on celestial highways like the Milky Way. Ecology, therefore, becomes portal, the body of nature and the body of the individual a means to dive, to soar, to expand, to see. The solstices and equinoxes, Rappenglick explains, were paths. The zodiacal belt, the polar or zenithal world axis, or the horizon with its cardinal and intermediary points were selected cosmic highways. The strata of the scaled cosmos which equally embodies celestial and terrestrial spheres are reachable by a graduated construct, which can, for example, be a branched world tree, an incremented vine, a ladder, a chain of arrows shot into each other, the stratified world mountain. Voyages proceed in these three dimensions of a universal reality, with no fixed boundary between outer and inner space. And this is key. Inner and outer space are interpenetrating realities. To navigate the vastness of the skies is to navigate the vastness of the skull. To navigate the subterranean aquifers is to navigate the deep springs of circulating fluids of the body. This great body is within the body. So there is a natural longing to fly, to see from great heights, to allow consciousness to dissolve into finer and finer gradations of space, not out of bypass, but because up is a direction that consciousness naturally moves in creatures with vertical spines and tree-like nervous systems whose sensitive bulb-like brains sit perched amidst the sky. Our skulls long to expand into the sky. The spirit longs to soar. There's no reason why soaring up can't also be embodied practice. Ask the falcon. Ask the raven. Ask the jay. So, again, there's no inherent conflict between below, middle, and above. Down is not inherently more real than up, nor up than down. In ancient Egypt, as in the tantric traditions, lower and upper worlds were all extensions of a great body of animacy, of living, breathing universe. The body of Osiris crossed the space between down and up, dead and alive, rotting and sprouting. As above, so below. Beings below and beings above were always intimately linked. Plants and planets, wombs and night skies, the map of stars was a map of the meridians of a great body. This isn't metaphor, it's the fractal reality of bodies. Traditional cultures, Rappengluck explains, quote, don't recognize any real separation between the inner space of the subject, the physical and spiritual self, and the outer space. If we start looking closer, the lines between below and above are very permeable. Science now tells us that the little scarab beetle, so sacred to the Egyptians, actually navigates by means of the Milky Way. It has a direct bodily connection to an arm of stars 6,500 light years away. This little beetle, where is the boundary of its body? Where is the boundary of your body? Our entire system of pulsing, circulating liquids is directly linked to the moon. All of our daily rhythms of sleep and waking, hunger and thirst, are governed by the light of celestial bodies. Everywhere our ancestors in the northern hemisphere traveled for the past hundred thousand years, 
they did so by the light of a single star 323 light years away. What is the body of that star? The body of that star includes all that ever sailed by its light. And all that ever sailed by its light have that star in their bodies. It is in the sky, and it is in our skulls. The sky lives in our own skulls. Our skulls are even shaped like skies. The Milky Way lives in our skulls. The same sagittal suture that traverses the crown of the head traverses the very skies. The Milky Way is seen in many traditions as a highway, a great path to other worlds that is, quote, especially related to contact with the original point of creation and the essence of life. This pathway was used by migrating animals, fish, birds, mammals, human beings, dead or alive. The Milky Way was the path of departed spirits, shamans, and migratory birds moving to other cosmic strata. The Milky Way was compared to a gate which, following the migration of birds during spring and autumn, periodically opened the entrance to the other world. Where is this gate, this portal of the Milky Way? Is it hundreds of light years away? Is it in your own skull? Have you not always longed to travel that great highway? Patterns of stellar configuration are part of this body. Modern scientists scoff at astrology, saying how could stellar bodies so far away have any influence on human behavior? Those stellar bodies aren't far away. Inner space and outer space are the same thing within bodies. Those stellar bodies are woven into our bodies. Bodies as we know them would not exist at all if it weren't for celestial bodies. Take it further back, and these bodies, these human bodies, are made entirely of elements forged in stars. No stars, no bodies. Your body is of the stars. Astrology is a study of embodiment practice, a study of the continuum of bodies. In a world in which we would not be alive if it were not for the whirling faraway lights above, the animate pattern forces of constellations live in bodies, express as stories that we construct entire worlds around, express in hopes and poems and children's songs, express in the patterns of organ and tissues. Lions, crabs, goatfish, animate forces alive in the configurations of stars and alive in bodies. When have the stars not been part of this body? So, in this vision, to be embodied is to embrace an imaginal body that does not end at the perimeter of the skin. Graham Harvey, in his treatise on animism, says this, quote, The richness of actual and potential relationships means that the boundaries of a person are not coterminous with their body. Tantric traditions encouraged a meditative plasticity that expanded the body. The tantric body is regularly expanded to be vast as space. Can you feel it? A body vast as space? Can you feel it in these times of constriction and isolation? Can you feel the value of connecting to a body vast as space? O oh, doe-eyed one, says the Vijnanabhairava Tantra, one may imagine that all the tissues of the body are pervaded by space. Through this practice, one's meditation will become stable and steady. Christopher Wallace comments on this, quote, Perhaps the dravyas, 
bodily tissues, here refers to the Ayurvedic dhatus, namely hair, skin, muscle, blood, fat, bone, marrow, and reproductive fluid, in which case one should contemplate each of these in sequence as nothing but space. Can you feel this in your body? Your bones are space. Your blood is space. Your hair is space. Your hair is space. Oh, doe-eyed one, your hair is space. One may contemplate, the text says, space in all directions within one's own body simultaneously. Space in all directions. The text continues, one may contemplate the truth that one's entire body, or indeed the whole world, consists of consciousness. All the tissues of the body, space, consciousness. Quote, Imagine the entire sky as Bhairava, that's Shiva, consciousness, and that it is dissolved in your head so that your head is continuous with and has the same nature as the sky. You will become completely permeated with the reality of the radiant energy that is Bhairava's nature. Is it bypassing to architect a body as vast as space? It can help day-to-day life tremendously, give us a wider, broader perspective, not just mentally, but bodily, so that life can be met expansively. Contractive situations, when the tendency is to want to tighten and brace and repel, can be met expansively. The tantric practices give us visions of spacious, luminous, humming bodies. The energies of the elements are embodied. The vibrational power of syllables is embodied. Sambhogakaya, the great enjoyment body, is when the individual body merges with the universe as it revels in itself in perpetual reverberatory bliss. In that place, is there any distinguishing this body from the great body of time and space, light and gravity? A body is a realm. To be embodied is to understand, feel into, and eventually architect the realm of the individual body-mind, in a way that makes it more possible to merge into the great body of nature. So the question becomes, how is my body meeting the vastness? How is the vastness alive in my body? In a world whose anxieties and abruptnesses spur energetic contraction, do I still allow myself to soar? For soar we must. Soar we must. How can we see clearly into our lives unless we go high? You know the feeling when you walk to the top of a mountain and you look out over a great horizon and somehow looking out over that external geography and looking out over the geography of one's own life are the same thing? Bodies need to go high sometimes. How can we gain perspective unless we go high? To free the body into spaces of ethereal vastness, to travel, to soar, has always been vital for bodies. For traditionally, these airborne journeys were not simply flights of fantasy. Traditionally, the purpose of spiritual travel was to address an imbalance in the body of the community. And the measure for whether that great journey is worth it is if that imbalance gets addressed. Is it worth the shamanic voyager exposing themselves to the shaping winds of the other world? It is if whatever they find there and sing there and invoke there translates into the body of a community. 
The health of the body of the community, the embodiment of the community itself, depends on individuals who are willing and able to soar into imaginal spaces, to explore vast skies, to fly as birds. But such flights were also always anchored in the nest of communal context. So one individual flying just for the sake of flying, you know, going on an ayahuasca journey or vision quest in which their own mind is blown open, and they realize all these vitally important things about themselves, is nothing until those realizations come to live in the body of a community. Whether we are going down or up in our great journeys, in or out, expanding, drawing in, breath by breath, the purpose of the journey is to have our great realizations live in the body of the community. Within this, downward journeys, shadow journeys, underworld journeys, just like upward journeys, can live disembodied unless we have a context in which to grow them, a context for the great visions and realizations to knit into tissues, for them to grow limbs within the community, to grow beating hearts within the community, to grow bone and lymph. Healing through the body It's healing through the body All along Healing through the body It's in it through the body Insights, realizations must grow a body for them to ultimately be of lasting value. This is something Western philosophy and Western science seem to have never really fully grasped. All that matters at the end of the day is how the insight is embodied into culture. Knowing that the universe has two trillion galaxies of spiraling space dust is exactly as helpful as it is embodied, felt in the heart, translated into a renewed awe at the wonder of our tiny lives expressed as increased presence with our families and loved ones, woven into daily practice. Otherwise, it simply remains as disembodied fact. Insights need bodies. Realizations need bodies. What does it take for an insight, a realization, to grow a body? If ritual-based cultures are to be believed, it takes repetition, friction. It takes practice. It takes creating a container in which to hold insights so that they can grow bodies. It means perhaps sometimes resisting the immediate urge to let all of our insights bubble forth all the time and instead actually digesting and metabolizing a few of them. So this is pretty important when looking at traditional embodiments. Embodiment is only embodiment if it actually plays out in bodies. This isn't theoretical. This isn't Deleuzian rhizomatics. This isn't if I just say the right things about embodiment and have a lot of cool ideas about ecology, then I'm somehow embodied. Here's a question for all of us. How do our pristinely articulated examples of how mycelial fungal models can save the world actually translate into us being kinder people in community? How is that philosophy being embodied? In my younger years, you could say I had a lot to say about peace and love and social change. And simultaneously, what I actually embodied quite often was self-righteousness, 
lack of responsibility, rash decision-making, to embody a little more what I wanted to be, what I wanted the world to look like, took years of ritual repetitive friction, and it meant deconstructing some of those bodies that had built up along the way. The world is screwed so I get to treat people however I want, that's a body. The ashram rules apply to everyone else but me, that's a body. Are you familiar with these bodies? So embodiment discourse can point the way to embodiment, but what really matters is what is actually being embodied. Let's put it a little more bluntly. Saying all the right things about embodiment doesn't actually mean much. Embodiment discourse can be a way for, you know, smarmy dudes to try to pick up girls at embodiment festivals. What matters is not that we have the perfect philosophy of embodiment. Say all the right rhizomatic things can get a lot of likes on our embodiment posts, but that we actually let the teachings and insights we are exposed to seep into our tissues to the point that we actually practice what we're talking about. Nothing new there, not a hot take, or maybe, in fact, the hottest take of all. Want to talk about embodiment, embodiment world? Let me ask this of myself. Am I actually practicing what I preach? Like, if I hear something once and the next week I go start teaching it as if I've known it for years, is that embodiment? Remember that one realization I had? That one life-altering vision on that journey? What layers of my body has it seeped into? Where in the body does it live? Does it live in the lunar body? Meaning, when the moon returns each month, is it still there? Is it an inextricable part of the monthly pulse of my being? Is it enmeshed in the wave circulation of fluids through my body? Or was it simply a passing tide? Does it live in the solar body? Is it part of my daily waking rhythm, my daily experience of life? Does it survive the test of daily luminosity applied to it? Try it in the days after having a great profound insight in a state of journeying. You know, that one insight that you think is going to change everything. Ask yourself today with the rising of the sun, does that insight still live in my body? Where has it landed? Has it blastulated? Has it grown a notochord? Has it grown limbs? Where has it migrated? Has it seeped from the skull to the heart, but not made it to the pelvic floor yet? Is it in the femurs? Or is it just hanging out at the ankles and the toes? Mercurial discourse, the ongoing flood of ideas and insights, often never lives deeper than in the limbs of a culture's body. This is why trickster mercury is often associated with the joints. These days, our culture is driven by mercurial discourse that never goes deeper than the limbs. Keep the marionette puppet frantically dancing. Keep the limbs fighting. And everyone lives in the comfortable illusion that something's happening. But the change hasn't metabolized. It hasn't been embodied. Being the change is the biggest cliche in the activist world. And it is the slowest, most painstaking thing for a being to actually metabolize and embody. And don't get me wrong, mercurial ideas are great. Philosophies are necessary. It's just that eventually they need to live in bodies or they vanish. 
all those internet posts about living in my truth and my power and what embodied divine sexuality looks like, how does that actually play out in the body of my relationships with others? All those thoughts about what I am and where I'm at and what my point of view is, do those thoughts actualize in the body of my life? The meme verse is its own body. The primary forces shaping our bodies today are industrial, digital, technological, forces that contract bodies into isolated units that are plugged into a great connectivity, yet are increasingly anxious, alone, and depressed. Overuse of smartphones stoops the spine, weakens the core, dulls the senses, fractures the attention span of everyone from white supremacists to animist eco-activists. How much time do we spend on the internet loudly announcing that Western civilization's mind-body split is ruining the world? And yet, in that digital space, we are playing directly into the split. We are immersed in what Byung-Chul Han calls the world of non-things which could also be called disembodied. We no longer dwell on the earth and under the sky, he says, but on Google Earth and in the cloud. The world is becoming increasingly intangible, cloud-like, and ghostly. You know that ghostly quality. When you emerge from a long time online to behold a material world that somehow seems pale and silent by comparison, I know you've seen it. I've seen it. This is the disembodying of the world in action. It doesn't matter how truthful and right the ideal that we're posting about. What matters ultimately is the somatic effect on our bodies. Perhaps if we want to actualize an embodied world, we need to explore how our ideals actually intersect with bodies. Yet, in a culture of ideation, abstraction, and 140-character summarizations, we assume that having a stated worldview of embodiment and being embodied are the same thing. That non-dual tantric dude at that festival, he seemed so embodied, and then he treated me like garbage. How could it be? Because we assume that abstract philosophy means something. Someone like Rene Descartes snaps his fingers and the whole human vision of mind and body change. But did Descartes actually change anything about how French farmers and bakers and weavers experience their bodies? Did their somatic interaction with the world suddenly shift when Descartes said that mind and body are separate? Or did Descartes' axiom come out of a set of experiences that had metastasized in the bodies of Enlightenment Europeans over hundreds of years? The body of a culture shifts and changes over generations. Within this, the somatic practices and habits and conditions of a culture determine the nature of its body. Abstract ideas only sprout into deep change if they've been metabolized into a culture's body. So, here's a paradox. In a universe made of paradoxical bodies, you don't need a philosophy of embodiment in order to be embodied. I think of my Jewish grandmother, still a force of nature into her 90s, who never uttered the word embodiment in her life. I think of how she carried her body. I think of that discerning presence. A kind of Cartesian way of thinking about embodiment would be, you know, that the Western mind-body split is responsible for separating us from our bodies, and therefore anyone who knowingly or unknowingly plays into the idea that body and mind or body and spirit are separate is somehow less embodied than those who speak about embodiment. And then I think of the bodies that I've actually encountered and I see paradoxes within paradoxes.
I think it was just about 23 years ago that I first saw Serena Williams play tennis live. It was at the U.S. Open in New York, and it was a doubles match. So it was in a small court, and our seats were right up close. So when we walked in, she was about 30 feet away. It would be difficult to describe her as anything other than a vision of fierce embodiment. Fierce embodiment, upending the prim and proper tennis world with bold, raw play, root-driven power, and with the very presence of her body. And, after every match Serena wins, what does she do? She points up to the sky and thanks a disembodied god, Jehovah. She's a Jehovah's Witness. Here's someone whose spirit-body dualism doesn't seem to be keeping her from being embodied. In fact, for her, Jehovah might not be disembodied at all. I'll say this again. Embodiment does not depend on having exactly the right philosophy of embodiment. I've known Dvaitas, that means dualists, in India and Christians in Brazil who were some of the most deeply embodied people I've ever met. One of my bhakti teachers, a big-bellied bear of a being, welcomes newcomers into his arms, dances, sings, throws his head back in divine rapture, relishes every word that he speaks, and he's a dualist. He sees spirit and body as two separate things. He thinks the body is a shell. I know a particular sadhu in Rudra Prayag who takes care of a hermitage at the confluence of the Alaknanda and Mandakini rivers. The way he walks on that rocky path, the way his toes expand over stone, the way his thumbs move over a bead, there's such a presence. Every day he carries water, pours water, tends the hermitage garden, cares for the Rudraksha trees. He will tell you point blank, the body is nothing. And yet, the presence that pours through his body, paradoxes within paradoxes, bodies within bodies, there is friction in a universe made of bodies. Embodiment, if nothing else, is the harnessing of that very friction. There's a beautiful friction set up in the Zen traditions, for example. Ultimately, we want to reach a place in which the limited individual body merges into the great body of the cosmos. Ultimately, it's a vision of, I am more than this limited body. And yet, as the paradox is set up, the minute one starts looking ahead, anticipating, going beyond anything other than this moment right here in this body, one has dropped the practice. Feel into the beautiful humming paradox. In a state of presence, perhaps, the body as we think of the body is both everything and nothing at once. Perhaps I am this body and I am not this body are together the very song of embodiment. Our Western visions of the spirit-body split are shaped by how we've defined spirit and body. We assume that if there's a spirit-body split in a tradition, then the body is automatically less than. We assume a total opposition, but this is not always the case. Yoruban trance traditions teach that there is an immortal spirit that reincarnates in bodies again and again and again. So do the Brazilian Christian animist Umbanda traditions. Would anyone call these dance-based, trance-based, exuberant traditions 
disembodied? Of course not. It's very possible to understand spirit and body as two separate things, as many cultures do, and still be embodied. We just have to get rid of some cultural baggage. So if a Catholic priest tells us that the body is just clothing for the spirit, it might send us into a diatribe about duality and the church and the history of the mind-body split. But what if an Amazonian jaguar shaman tells us basically the same thing? Visions of spirit, of a fine, fine essence that lives within the body but also beyond the body, in many traditions are textured and nuanced. It's not automatically spirit equals good, body equals bad. There are layers and gradations, beings within beings within beings. Spirit, one could say, has its own body. That body expands and travels and soars in ways that the immediately tangible body does not. Consciousness travels the world body at will. Consciousness reflects, consciousness expands, consciousness shrinks, consciousness flies. Consciousness flies. Consciousness flies. How long does it take your consciousness to travel from here to the Milky Way? See if you can go there now, the Milky Way. That celestial pathway, that vast flock of eternally migrating white geese, as the Baltic Slavic people saw it, the primordial river of antlers. Go there now to that primordial river of antlers, the galactic cloud highway of our ancestors' spirit bodies. Did you go there? How long did it take? States of consciousness have bodies. Thoughts have bodies. There are spirit bodies, imaginal bodies, vibrational bodies, etheric bodies. Time has a body. Have you considered this? That all bodies ripen and come to fruition and pass on within the great body of time. And within each body is the opportunity to embody consciously both the rhythmic passage of time and time as eternity. For eternity is the body of the spirit. Eternity is the body of the Holy Spirit. Expand the thought body. Expand the spirit body. In traditional animisms, spirits soar. Spirit bodies fly. Often the universe we see and touch and hear and feel is seen as only one layer of a vast, multi-tiered spirit body that extends into infinity. So vast that it comprises, I heard one teacher say, 99% of reality. As if all this, all that we see, hear, and feel is a thin layer of tangible resonance that is a fractal reflection of infinite layers of invisible resonance. The great body. The great body of the mother. So the Tantra Loka says, quote, She is the swan of unstruck sound and the goddess of the embodied soul who is fine like the hundredth part of the tip of a hair. She is conceived to be in the body of all living beings where she brings about the persistence of creation. Finer than the hundredth part of the tip of a hair, the body of all things. We have to be willing to expand our view of the body to include these vastnesses, to include air, space, spirit, infinity. So we come to see body as a mandala of being that is both as close as our jugular vein and as vast as time and space, and ultimately made mostly 
of an unfathomable fabric of mystery. To do this, we have to let go of embodiment as something that is primarily about our bodies. There's another paradox, right? In a society deeply driven by psychology vernacular and hyper-individualized visions of embodiment, perhaps the most challenging shift is recognizing that embodiment isn't always about our individual bodies. In traditional ritual embodiments, what we could call my body is rarely the issue at hand. My body instead is part of the communal body, the ritual body, the cosmic body. My body is an instrument to enliven the collective body. Within this, embodiment as perpetual individual emotional process is a very recent, very modern thing. You won't find many ritual traditions whose main emphasis is on the individual person repeatedly cycling through emotional processes towards an end that primarily has to do with them. Is it necessary in a culture that has been cut off from its emotions to dive into these spaces? Of course. But the challenge is to be able to start to recognize when too much emphasis on the individual emotional psychology starts to spin off into its own thing its own whirlpool, its own echo chamber, its own, as the Greeks saw, inescapable grove of tangled myrtle trees, removed from the cycle of replenishment of communal and cosmic bodies that traditional mythic and ritual embodiment entails. And this is really hard for us to grasp. The ongoing life of the body of the community does, in fact, require that the individual make a journey of transformation. But it's not my journey in the way that we think of as my journey in a hyper-individualized culture. It's not dharma as career choice. It's not tied to a Puritan psychologized success metric. It's a cosmic and communal process reflected in an individual body. The fact that it's not an individual journey is actually a great relief for those of us who bear the weight of the culture of hyper-individualism. Since the journey is communal and cosmic rather than psychopersonal, it relieves the individual of the burden of guilt or self-criticism. For the journey is about replenishing the cosmos itself, about green things sprouting and old things decaying, about the fallen pieces of the body of the goddess being reunited, about land being replenished over and over again through song, and not about individual worth or individual self-esteem. Let's look at it this way. From my limited experience, you don't find many indigenous traditions saying, you're perfect just the way you are, unless they are talking about very vast cosmic non-dualities that have very little to do with you. You also don't find them wallowing in guilt or self-pity or self-criticism about what they should be or should have accomplished by age 30. All of that goes away if the body in question is not your body, but the body of the community. And the wellness in question is not owned by the individual, but is the wellness of the larger cosmos. In Aboriginal Notions of Embodiment, Deborah Rose writes in her book, Dingo Makes Us Human, the person achieves their maturity and integrity through relationships. Relationships with people, animals, country, and dreamings. Subjectivity itself, she says, is communal. Subjectivity is communal. So the practice of embodiment is repetitive transformation for communal and cosmic renewal and continuity. The ritual journey in body 
is for the individual body to practice being part of the great body again and again. Ritual embodiment, mythic embodiment, as opposed to therapeutic embodiment, does not have the safe comfort of the individual body as its highest goal. Embodiment as an extension of the therapeutic world knowingly or unknowingly forwards embodiment as a hyper-individualized process towards an eventual goal of what? Psychological normalcy on the one hand? Endless personal shadow work on the other? The therapeutic vision of embodiment cannot help but center the self as an isolated unit. In mythic embodiment, this self is blasted open into the great body, a process which neither celebrates nor preserves the sense of self, of well-being, of individual story, or even individual importance. To be in the body is to recognize death all around to sprout the new from the old, to be reduced to ash, to be sewn into a much greater weaving than we ever knew existed. In this process, the individual body is shed and discarded like snakeskin, over and over again. This is the ritual mythic bodily process, to break open forever. I slough off dead scales, Harriet Mullen says. Flick skin flakes to the ground, shedding toughness, peeling layers down to the vulnerable stuff, and I'm blinking off old eyelids for a new way of seeing. Bodies and myths split open and things grow out of them. Bodies and myths are torn apart. Bodies and myths have awesome, terrifying, sometimes brutal rejoinings and conjoinings with divine forces. Bodies and myths are not safe, not preserved as they are in some type of state of wholeness or wellness. Bodies and myths die. And through death, the true potential for embodiment arrives. So initiates have their insides imaginally removed and are sewn up with bellies full of quartz crystals. Bodies sprout fur and horns. Bodies bleed, bodies sing. Bodies lie inert while spirit birds fly. The body of the shaman lies lifeless, dead, while all throughout the cosmos the spirit bird flies. The classic deep trance posture in the Kalahari is with the dancer doubled over, bent, the back of their necks yanked upwards from the force of the boiling power. The noom awakened, noses gushing blood. Listen to the Inuit tale sometime if you want to experience the full range of visions of bodies in interaction. Ritual castrations, flying organs, geographies of disembodied fat and bones, shamans walking about as skeletons. Embodiment is to be reduced to bone, stripped to the bones, to learn to walk that way, only bones, only bones, only bones. This is embodiment. To reduce oneself to the skeleton condition, Eliade says, is equivalent to re-entering the womb of this primordial life, that is, to a complete renewal, a mystical rebirth. So the Inuit shaman walks the world as a skeleton. Can you walk like this? As only bones? Try it. Walk as only bones. See how it changes things. One Siberian initiate describes this embodied experience. After not eating for an entire summer, his ancestors came and flayed him, tore his muscles and tendons and connective tissue off of his bones, cut his bones up, and then counted them one by one. 
Only after his shaman ancestors have cut up his body in this way, Eliade says, and separated his bones, can he begin to practice. This embodiment as being torn apart, embodiment with little emphasis on the individual body at all, can sound, what, impersonal, terrifying? For who am I if the journey isn't about me? It also relieves individual bodies of a great, great burden. How do I say this? We in the modern, psychologized, individualized West carry such great burdens that we don't even know are there. The burden is on the individual body not only to prove worth, to overcome challenge, to find success, but to also be the primary unit in which the gods sort out their great battles, in which the very world is saved. When modern psychology turned the nature gods, the old gods, into psychological archetypes, it unwittingly placed a massive burden on individual brains and bodies. Everything that once could be addressed communally and cosmically through the enactment of ecstasy, that could be addressed in a festival, that could be addressed with candle flame and sprinkled water, that could be addressed with diagrams in the sand and bundles of sticks and the simple feeding of surrounding energies, that could be addressed with the swell of the drone and the song of the people and through the felt sweat of the dance, is now somehow up to the individual to work out within their own heads. No animist tradition I know of has ever said, the gods live in your head, now go figure it all out. Yeah, go find one person behind a desk with a little certificate saying they're qualified to help you manage the forces of the universe and go work all that stuff out. The gods, the embodied gods, the gods are all around us. They pervade us, surround us. You are surrounded by bright forces. Those bright forces are to be sung to, felt, interacted with, warded off sometimes, other times welcomed. They are the turning of the seasons, the spiral dance of the moon. They call out, sing my name, feed me flame and blue curls of myrrh smoke and yellow acacia flowers. Make spirit boats and set them afloat on dawn's gray waters. Offer, offer, offer your body to the great body again. Understanding animism means understanding the individual body is a tiny, permeable vessel in a world of great forces. And these forces are not up to us to reconcile within our own heads as part of some individualized process. And then, of course, if we don't reconcile all of the vast forces that surround us, it's somehow a judgment on our character or a statement of our worth. This, too, has now become part of embodiment discourse, that all the pain of all the world at once must be felt in this body, and the world must therefore be saved in this body, and the saving of the world in this body requires me to dwell forever among monsters and shadows and demons. And here I'm going to raise a little flag just to check out, just to feel into maybe within this exploration of the paradoxes of embodiment, a little flag about how Puritanism creeps into modern Western embodiment discourse and makes burdens heavier than they need to be through individual guilt and shame which then becomes another way of turning the attention back on us, on the individual, instead of on the gods themselves. And of course, the guilt body is addictively attractive. In a secular society, guilt and shame become ways of experiencing religious catharsis. What used to live as the extended felt body of ritual practice 
the religious ecstasies, the turnings over, the sacrifices, are now metabolized in the body of modern liberal culture through societal guilt. The cathartic dance of blame and guilt and purity and redemption lives in the progressive body and becomes a way to experience the religious, ecstatic, sacrificial in a secular world. In traditions that valued animate ecstasy, such paroxysms of feeling would have a devotional container in which to live and thrive, free of the relative worth or unworth or psychological burden of the individual. But because the modern West has thrown out the ecstatic, and made the individual the processing unit at the center of all things, an individual person in a secular world has to reconcile it all in themselves. And again, this is far too much emphasis on us. Individual bodies with no larger context and no larger vision, larger vision of the billion-year flow of creation, or vision of nature as the great regenerating goddess, or vision of the universe as the sacrifice fire in which all things burn and rise again and burn and rise again, or vision of the flow of ancestry, or the eternity of the ritual moment, or the prime importance of ecstasy, individual bodies can't handle it all on their own. We can't handle it all on our own. Our poor bodies. So in this time of great grief, of great distress, of great destruction and great change, what is asked of our bodies? To feel, yes, to not turn away, to go through the underworld journey when it is required of us, to visit Hecate in her echoing subterranean chamber, and to find Helios aloft in his high mansions. What is required, perhaps, is to find and replenish our ongoing connection to the great body to turn our attention to the animate force itself. What would it be like to find our embodiment through singing to the body of the world itself? What would it be like to put her at the very center? What would it be like to sing to a smooth pebble of river granite, or to a black cormorant, or to a cloud, without any emphasis really on us? What would it be like to truly center the animate, as we're always talking about, the animate body that is the body of everything. Perhaps the animate forces resonate best when we turn our attention, turn our song, turn the focus to them. Then the myth becomes not simply a psychological construct. It becomes a way of actually linking this body with the great body of all that is. For the body of the world is vast, ever resonant, ever responsive. It is ready to draw us in and to exhale us out replenished. This embodied world is sunlight and shadow and ocean and atmosphere. It is the Milky Way in our skulls and the Milky Way above, and perhaps higher and higher octaves of galactic pathway beyond that. It asks that we dive into its deep springs and caverns. It asks that we soar into its heights. Yes, it asks that we soar into its heights. Beloved, the world needs you to soar. The world needs you to soar. The world needs the artist, shaman, initiate flying into the vast expanses of space. And not every precious gem that the artist brings back from her journeys needs to be a socio-cultural commentary on climate change. We need vision for vision's sake, imagining for imagining's sake. 
for in the expansion of these bodies, we help communities expand into possible futures. We help those around us expand into embodied spaces in which the possible springs to life. In rituals of communal expansion, the world itself expands. Perhaps even the grief we feel is an invitation to expand. Expand into the great grief, joy, body of the universe's primal longing for itself. Understand that ultimately, embodiment is nature fulfilling nature. This is the song of her body, nature fulfilling nature. Embodiment is about her. Her, the animate life force, the goddess, the god, the creator, the birther, the web of life. What does she ask of us? Yes, that we root and anchor. Yes, that we shed. Yes, that we soar. Together we soar for embodiment means being torn apart and flying away. This episode contains reference to many songs, movies, articles, books, etc. These include the song In and Through the Body by Trevor Hall, the book The Death of Nature by Carolyn Merchant, The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram, Music and Trance by Gilbert Rouget, three books by David Lewis Williams. These are Inside the Neolithic Mind, Deciphering Ancient Minds, and The Mind in the Cave, Shamanism by Mircea Eliade, Animism by Graham Harvey, Christopher Wallace's translation and commentary on the Vinana Bhairava Tantra, A Thousand Plateaus by Gilles Deleuze, Trickster Makes This World by Lewis Hyde, Discourse on Method by René Descartes, Non-Things by Byung-Chul Han, The Fourth Chapter of the Tantra Loka by Abhinavagupta, translated by Mark Tiskowski, The Book Dingo Makes Us Human by Deborah Rose, Voyages Guided by the Skies, Ancient Concepts of Exploring and Domesticating Time and Space Across Cultures by Michael Rappengluck, the poem Shedding Skin by Harriet Mullen, the Masks of God series by Joseph Campbell, Lost Posture, Why Indigenous Cultures Don't Have Back Pain by Michaeline Duclef, writing for NPR in June of 2015, an evaluation of the Akura Yoruba traditional belief in reincarnation by Oladutunbi Osanyimbi and Kehinde Falana, writing in the Open Journal of Philosophy in 2016, the Pleiades as Openings, The Milky Way as the Path of the Birds, and The Girl on the Moon, Cultural Links Across Northern Eurasia by Yuri Bereskin, and of course, Dung Beetles Navigate Via the Milky Way, first known in Animal Kingdom, by Christine Delamore, writing in National Geographic in 2013. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoy today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination vision and wonder.
Our galaxy itself contains a hundred billion stars. It's a hundred thousand light years side to side. It bulges in the middle, 16,000 light years thick, but out by us it's just 3,000 light years wide. We're 30,000 light years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe.